Friends, let us pray. Gracious God, into the beauty of this day and into the stillness of this hour, we ask your presence to be with us. Still in us any voice but your own, open us to the hearing of your word. And hearing may we believe, and believing may we act. For we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our gospel lesson today comes from Matthew's gospel. We are still in the fifth chapter, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount. And you can find this in your pew Bibles. Or so it tells me on page 5 of the New Testament section. Let us listen for the word of God. You have heard it said that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you. And do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. In preparing for this week, I will admit that the phrase perfect is the enemy of good has echoed in my mind a time or two. It's a 17th century Italian proverb, and it warns us not to let impossible standards keep us from completing the work that is in front of us. And like Murphy's Law, it has a few corollaries. The military corollary goes something like this. Do it until it's good enough for government work. (laughs) It's a kind of blessing that was set over any project or plan that might have some small flaws but was still workable. That would include the two-tone paint job on my platoon's line shack when we discovered that tan came in more than one color. So I've done a balancing act this week between these two phrases. Perfect is the enemy of the good and the voice of Jesus in our scripture today. Be perfect. 
Now, the command to perfection comes as a sticking point for a lot of people. In fact, theologian William Loder observes that this one verse, this one verse makes the Sermon on the Mount seem impractical or utopian or the province of holy orders like monks and nuns rather than instruction for God's church. And then, then there are the communities for whom the command to be perfect creates in them a relentless search for purity found only in the exclusion of those who don't measure up. Perfect. Now I noticed that neither of these extremes lines up with what we know of Matthew's gospel. And so I wondered how we might hear Jesus differently this morning, and this led me on a word girl journey. Thank you, Becky. And has me asking you to give the geek and the Greek a chance to explain. So Matthew's Greek is relatively simple. It's nothing like Paul's rhetorical legal style. Most English translations of verse 48 fall into one or two categories. The first translates Jesus' words is the imperative command we've heard this morning, be perfect. And the second translates the words as a future condition in which the listeners will participate. You shall be perfect. The first is our Bible translation. The second translation more closely matches a literal translation of the text. And not only that, the simple translation of the word perfect, with all the modern baggage that it carries with it, doesn't capture the sense of the Greek in which Jesus' followers are to become teleoi, just like God is teleos. Okay, so here's the really nerdy part. When the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek long, long ago. Telios was the word that translated the Hebrew concept of tamim, that concept of being big-hearted, whole-hearted, complete, sound, whole, having integrity. And it turns out that telios really does encompass those qualities of being whole and mature, and complete, and yes, even perfect. But today's scripture is not talking about the flawless kind of perfection that we find in a diamond. It's not talking about some distant paragon of virtue, but it's talking about a deepening wholeness inside of us, a completion and a maturity that grows in us even as we navigate the messy middle of our daily lives. William Loder notes that Matthew uses that perfect word again in verse 1921. He uses it when he tells the young rich man to sell all his possessions and give the money to the poor because that will make him perfect, complete, mature, and whole. That's the stuff of eternal life. So this is Matthew's word to us. We as followers of Jesus Christ are participants in being and becoming ever more wholehearted, 
ever more mature, complete, sound, unimpaired, and filled with integrity. Our faith, our faith is then demonstrated in a deep commitment to the poor, the least, the last, the lost, and the lonely. That's taking our youth to heifer. But this week it took me to Leviticus. Yes, Leviticus. Now, in our morning worship service, we normally include two of the four daily scriptures. And the New Testament really dominated my early planning back in those salad days three weeks ago when newsletter articles and bulletin information were set for publication. And I'll confess that that's partly because Leviticus does not make our Presbyterian hit parade. In fact, this reading from Leviticus is the only one that we will find in our entire three-year cycle of readings. Yet this week, the words of Leviticus 19 have been compelling to me. So here's a quick recap. The Israelites are in the wilderness, having been saved from slavery in Egypt. They have set up the tent of meeting, and God spends time in there with Moses, giving him the the little commandments that shape the way the people live out the big commandments. And so on this day, like so many other days, God calls for Moses, and Moses goes into the tent, and God begins with this phrase, tell the people. And then something that will sound a little familiar. He says, tell the people, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Be perfect, as your God and Father in heaven is perfect. Now, Israel wasn't left to wonder what this holiness looked like, because God gives them little snapshots, punctuated by the words, I am the Lord. And God gives them both a ritual and a moral framework for what holy living is. It's a farming culture. So God tells them anytime they go out to harvest the field or to harvest their vineyard, they have to leave part of it unharvested. And anything that's fallen on the ground, the grain or the grapes, they have to leave it there. They can't strip everything bare. And they do that so that the landless people, the poor people, and the people who are aliens in the land would have access to those things that are essential to life, to bread and to wine. It seems that to be holy in this context meant to live in a sacred and certain way. And God goes on. It's a specific way of living. It's a way of living without lies and falsehoods. It's a way of living without fraud or theft or the unjust withholding of wages. It is a way of living without the cruelty to those who have disabilities and without unjust judgments. It is to live without favorites. It is to live without slander or profit that comes through the violence It is to live without hatred for your kinfolk and without vengeance or good grudge fests. 
The instructions conclude with these words, which are also familiar. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So we find that to be set apart as God's people is to live with justice. We will try this. Is to live with justice and with love in ways that are really concrete. And later on, Moses will tell the people of God that following these commandments, following in God's way, is what makes them holy. You shall be holy, and it shall make you whole. Now, following God's way is a transforming experience, and it makes us a reflection of God's own holiness and a reflection of God's own wholeness. Following God's way by following Jesus is central to us the story of who we are and who we are becoming. This week I took a webinar on creating change. It's one of those things that's a really good thing for associate pastors to do. The speaker noted that knowing ourselves is instrumental in the process of transforming anything. And so she asked us, what is the story that you tell yourself that helps you know who you are? And so I thought about the stories that we share here at Third Church that tell us who we are. Now, in, in Johnston Hall, there is a picture of a woman. Her name is Lillian Alexander. She's an ordained elder of this church, or was. And she became a champion for women's ordination to the ministry of word and sacrament. And in 1954, she led Third Church to petition our denomination to clear the way for women's ordination to ministry. And she encouraged the leaders of this congregation and the members of this congregation to support this vision. And she raised her voice in support of this overture as it made its way through a pokey and prolonged Presbyterian process. And then Lillian rejoiced. She rejoiced as two and a half years later, the Reverend Margaret Towner became the first woman to be ordained as a Presbyterian pastor. She called her her godchild. Lillian Alexander and Third Presbyterian Church were the catalyst that paved the road on my own ordination to pastoral ministry. I am here because you are here. The history of this church is filled with moments when together we have been a catalyst for the transformation of the church and the transformation of the world, and it is a witness to our faith. Now, just yesterday at a planning retreat, your spiritual formation committee considered all the ways that faith is formed here at their church. And we've come to know that we are formed by the practices of our faith and by the ways that they follow God. So we are formed in worship, and we are formed by study and encounter with scripture, and we are formed when we pour out compassion and hospitality for others, 
and we are formed in ministry when we seek to feed the hungry and house those without homes, when we encourage school children in their studies, and when we seek to rebuild the fabric of life for those who have been swept up in disaster. We are formed with our families and we are formed in the friendships that we make here that transcend our differences and strengthen us. We are grounded by these practices and they're part of the sacred ground of holiness on which we stand. They are ancient and yet we reimagine them from age to age as we live them and share them and shape them and renew them. And so we become conservationists of the way of God. Yet today, Jesus is calling us to be more, to become more. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses this phrase, similar to the I am the Lord. He uses this phrase six times. You've heard it said, and he says something, but I, I say to you this. You've heard that. I tell you this. And among his ethical commands there, Jesus tells us that malice is just as good as murder in your heart. That leering is adultery. That swearing on God's name means our speech is dishonest. Jesus teaches that reciprocity is not justice, that the love of God and neighbor also means we need to love our enemies, that lifting fervent prayer comes as we lift up prayers for those who persecute us, and not those sneaky, snarky prayers where we pray for people to get what they deserve. <laughs> this is the way that we become God's children, Jesus says. And William Willimon gives it a little twist. He says, this is the way that God is, and therefore it's the way that we ought to be, because God's love is extravagant and risky and an offense to common sense, and God's children ought to love just like that. It's who we are. It's how we become wholehearted and complete and sound and whole and unimpaired, it's how we learn to live with integrity and authenticity. And that's our challenge, to follow Jesus on God's way and let it stretch and grow us. Jesus calls us out of the places where we're on solid ground and where we're comfortable, and he hands us a shovel and expects us to break new ground. From the practices and the places that we've been holding on to and conserving, Jesus pushes us to become catalysts and activists in less comfortable and less certain surroundings. Mystery trips. These are places where Jesus is laying new foundations of love in the world. And Jesus calls us from comfort into broken places calls us to compassion and companionship with all those we will find there. Jesus calls us to open our pantries and our kitchens and our hearts to people who hunger. 
to open our sacred spaces to those who need refuge, to go beyond politeness and risk opening our very selves to those who are lonely or lost or least or last, to tamp down the protests that rise, that deny our complicity in the oppression of others so that we might work together toward mutual freedom. Jesus calls us to put aside conventional wisdom for the lessons of love. And so we are called to stretch ourselves beyond the conservation of a way that we know and onto the sacred ground that will transform us as we become catalysts for change in the world and in ourselves. Lillian Alexander is a witness to me that we have done this before, that it's part of who we are. And so I ask you to imagine how the witness of what has come before might grow and in whose voice it might speak. Imagine what we might transform or be transformed into today. And know that as we follow Jesus Christ, opportunities will come. Today, we actually do have an opportunity. We've been given an opportunity in New York State to advocate on behalf of the young men and the young women, 16 and 17 years of age, who are being held in adult prisons before they're adults. We know that these teens are more likely to attempt suicide and more likely to be attacked with a weapon while they are incarcerated. And we know that the prison environment cultivates criminal behavior in them. And so we seek to raise the age. We seek to change the practice of this state and with it to change the lives of the teens in our criminal justice system, transforming what is now reciprocal justice into a path of redemption and rehabilitation. We have cards today that are intended to be signed and sent to our state legislators so that we can express our support in a transformative way. We can do this. We can do this because we are God's people. We can do this because we worship a God who is a God of extravagant and unfettered love. We can do this because we have heard God's word to us and we have let it take hold of us. We can do this because we are people who are called to take out shovels and break new ground. We can do this because we seek to follow God's way. And friends, that is just perfect. Amen.